Thanks, Archie. Good morning. Let's uh, pray. Lord, grant to us today to hear your voice and not harden our hearts. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I was at seminary. I worked as a security guard from 4 o'clock until midnight. Uh, I arrived shortly before most people were leaving and then took an old, uh, it was called a detex clock, and I did my rounds. Now every two hours, I walked a predetermined route, and uh, there were keys left in particular places in the building, and there, you took the key and you put it in the clock, and it left an imprint on the piece of paper that uh, advanced as the clock ticked. And this meant that my employer could verify that I was where I was meant to be when I was meant to be there. Um, I was assigned this task every two hours during the, uh, the work shift, and this means that uh, I was arriving at each location at a predictable time. So imagine my surprise when one day at about 6.05, I entered a room to find an incredibly embarrassed couple hastily adjusting their clothing and walking out without saying a word. And every time I remember that incident, I think they knew I was coming. In fact, if they were at all observant, they would know more or less when I was coming. How could they get caught out like that? How could they be found doing something so inappropriate? Now, amongst other things, Jesus is saying something similar, not exactly, but something similar in answer to those <laughs> who ask when he will return and what it will look like when he returns. He is saying, don't get caught out and don't neglect the things you should be doing. There's some background questions that um, are still at work from chapter 24. Uh, the disciples have asked, well, when will this happen? And what will the signs of the coming be, uh, of your coming be, and of the end of the age? Um, tw chapter 24, verses 5 to 35, then, talk about when it will happen. It will be deceptive, dangerous, distressing, dramatically sudden, and discriminating. But you can't know when. Chapter 24, verses 36 to 44 talk about the signs. It will be disruptive, and it demands vigilance on your part. But you can't read the signs to discover when it will happen. Well, so much for your questions, he tells the disciples. And then he starts to impose his own concerns as he teaches them. He already said that it demands vigilance in 42 to 44. Then in 45 to 51, he demands action of those who are waiting for his return. In the story after the ten virgins, Jesus is going to speak of talents, probably a, a better-known parable to most of us. And he talks about a master who goes away on a long journey and settles accounts when he returns after a long time. So with that background, let's turn to these verses in chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, where Jesus reiterates much of what he has said in the previous discussion and what he'll say in the rest of chapter 25. And it's really a story of five foolish waiters and five wise waiters. Uh, we can't call them waiters because we use that word for something else, but we should stress that Jesus speaks of this long delay and the activity of his followers while they wait. And we've just been told that we need to be watchful. Verse 42 of the previous chapter says, Therefore keep watch. Faithfulness and wisdom is reflected in watchful deeds of obedience. And we've been told that a key feature relates to a long time. And one of the things Jesus wants us to understand as he says these things is that the delay is so long 
that it becomes ridiculous to try to predict his return. And he again relates this to the disciples' question of when. That gives shape to the whole discussion. So I want to make three observations uh, directly from the parable. The first is that Jesus will arrive in an unexpected hour. Um, 25.1 says, at that time, Jesus looks ahead to when he will return from his long time away to fully establish his kingdom. Many will have misread or ignored the signs of the end. Others will have failed to watch, growing weary or losing faith because of the long delay. His return is compared to a wedding. The Bible doesn't speak in terms of being in heaven or harps and choirs. Instead, it speaks of Jesus returning here to establish his kingdom. And Jesus regularly uses this image of a wedding feast, of rejoicing, of reveling in the presence of the Lord. Now, in the Jewish wedding, the groom goes to the bride's home, and the formalities are performed there. And then there is an after-dark procession that conveys the bride to her new home with the groom. That's where the week-long reception, the week-long wedding celebration takes place. So the friends of the bride would be waiting outside the groom's house with a view to going out to him and ushering him and the bride into his house. And since it's well past dark, each member of the procession would be expected to carry a torch or a lamp. To be without one suggests that, well, maybe you're a gate crasher. Or worse, maybe you're a robber trying to get in in the confusion of the wedding so that you can steal things that don't belong to you. So the lamps aren't meant to be interpreted allegorically. They simply indicate who belongs and who doesn't. But belonging is a big deal in Jesus' parables of the, Jesus's parables of the kingdom. The Gospels, that's a story of universal celebration and of sins forgiven, of a relationship with the Lord through faith, and a life of obedience that receives its reward in eternity. And sometimes we might find it hard to hold together obedience with our message of salvation through faith alone, yet both sides are present throughout the scriptures. I think they're both being taught here. Verse 5 the groom has been delayed. We don't know why. Perhaps he's preparing the home he's going to share with the bride. We simply don't know. What we can know is that the ten young girls all become drowsy, which again is showing us that the delay is long. Now, this isn't the occasional yawn or the bobbing head that you sometimes notice when you're preaching a sermon. They, <laughs> they all fall asleep. And we might be tempted to think that following, fall, falling asleep is a problem. In the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus asked three of his disciples to accompany him, to pray with him in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's disappointed when he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And he says, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? But this story isn't about praying. And it certainly isn't about one hour. It, together with other parables, teach that the delay is long, so long that many find themselves wavering and in some cases doing foolish things. And it's clear enough that both the wise and the foolish virgins are sleeping. In fact, because it's so late, I suspect the virgins assume that the, gro the groom's not coming today. The wedding itself isn't going to be happening until the next day. So we don't need to worry about our dwindling supplies of oil because surely he isn't going to arrive this late. Nothing to worry about. But here he is. At midnight, the cry rang out. To add to the sense of delay, we're told the cry rings out at midnight. Now, bearing in mind that neither the groom nor Matthew was wearing a watch, 
we should probably understand midnight not as 12 o'clock, but as the middle of the night. If you knock on my door at, say, 3 a.m., I'm going to say, what do you want? It's the middle of the night. Now, more realistically, I'm going to say to Amy, I can't believe it. It's the middle of the night. When this groom shows up, it's a late night appearance. It's not just an unexpected hour. We could add that it's an awkward hour. So the second thing that Jesus teaches us is that it will be too late for those who aren't prepared, verses 7 to 12. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. They trim their wicks because otherwise they aren't getting in. That is, all ten wake up because all were sleeping and this is what they've come for. And they trim their wicks. Now, I looked up what it means to trim your wicks. Apparently, trimming a candle wick lets the flame burn more clearly, more brightly. But Jesus doesn't speak of wicks and candles here. A more direct translation might be that they prepared their lamps. Um, The NIV here kind of has it both ways. They trimmed their lamps. Um, These are oil-burning lamps or torches, and so they require, well, oil. The five wise maidens were prepared in advance, which in our lives means right now and each day going forward until he returns. And they're prepared because they want to celebrate the future feast with the groom. But the hard lesson and the point of the parable is that some, despite what they wanted and despite appearances, were not adequately prepared. Now, all ten had oil, but the wise ones had enough and the foolish ones didn't. Their first task was to light the way for a wedding procession. To not have oil means you can't do the very thing you're there to do. Verse 8, the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. From verse 8 onward, we hear the foolish ones talking and the response they receive. They speak twice. Both times they are told no. In verse 8, they ask the wise ones, and they're wise because they're prepared for some oil. In verse 9, the wise ones say no. They refuse to share. And that might strike us as uncaring and a bit harsh. Doesn't the gospel call us to share what we have? But the fact is, the only task entrusted to these ten that we know of, lighting the way as part of the procession, cannot be performed if they don't have the necessary oil. So the wise ones say no, lest none of them are able to light the way. In verse 9, they tell the foolish ones, go and buy some for yourselves. Now I think there are some things to bear in mind here. First, the focus isn't really on oil, but on those who don't have it. Many images would work. If you're driving in the desert, you ought to have at least a supply of water and some petrol. And there's no need to discuss what the petrol represents in that story. In this story, the five foolish virgins had oil, just not enough. That means we can't treat oil as an allegorical stand-in for salvation or the Holy Spirit or even good works. It simply points to being prepared during the delay. Second thing to notice, uh, look at chapter 25, verse 10. While they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. While they were out shopping, the groom shows up. He's been announced. Now he is present. And where are the five foolish virgins? 
Well, you might think the answer is that they're at Woolies, or maybe it's Bunnings, buying oil. But of course not. Do you think the towns and villages of first century Palestine had late night shopping? Um, when we lived in England, it was hard to find anything that was open past business hours. And it hasn't changed much, so I googled uh, what time do shops in Sheffield close. And apart from restaurants, the latest answer I could find was 5.30 p.m. Except on Sundays when they close at 4. Even a bustling metropolis like Jerusalem with its, say, 20,000 or 30,000 people didn't have oil shops that were open at midnight or 3 o'clock in the morning. So these five foolish maidens had to leave the site of the wedding to purchase something that wouldn't be available until at the earliest the next morning. They could now contribute nothing to the wedding. So as the story reaches its conclusion, the groom has arrived, the five wise virgins are admitted, and the door is closed in verse 10. It happens while they are on the way. The five foolish virgins are not getting in. And this might strike you as a strange security system. So surely people didn't live in fear of five young girls. But virtually every time Jesus speaks of the wedding feast, he speaks of the door being closed and people being excluded. People who want to get in, in some cases desperately, will not be allowed in because the door has been locked. The point isn't that these girls are to be feared, but that they are too late. When it was time to spring into action, these girls weren't prepared. So that when it was time to enter the wedding feast, these girls spring into action. The result was that they miss everything. Verse 11, eventually they arrive, presumably the next morning after they've completed their shopping spree, but the door is shut. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But the reply, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Do you think Jesus loves everybody? Do you think he loves everybody the same way? It'd be hard to know what that means if he tells some, I don't know you. If it's now daylight, the problem isn't that the groom can't see the girls well enough. Maybe they're friends of the bride. Maybe the groom himself has invited them to the wedding. Maybe he isn't getting up from the banqueting table. In any case, Jesus says almost exactly the same thing in Matthew 7, 23, to people who perform miracles in his name, but don't, quote, do the will of the Father who is in heaven. He says, I don't know you. Like the wise girls, who wouldn't share their oil, so the groom won't admit the foolish girls. These are girls he presumably invited to the wedding, but he says he doesn't know them. These are girls who are anything but lazy as they go to buy some oil and then return to the wedding. These are girls who invested to the point that they bought oil at least twice now and possibly purchased the lamps that they're burning it in. And these are girls who call out, sir, sir, with the same words translated almost everywhere else as Lord, Lord, including in Matthew 7, verse 21, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are girls who seem to have it all, but they cannot enter the feast. So what distinguishes the wise from the foolish? Even before we answer in terms of oil, we need to answer in terms of the bridegroom's delay. The delay of the groom distinguishes the wise from the foolish and causes some to fall into strife. 
And it's not an unfeeling rejection of those who build their lives around the hope of entering the kingdom. It's a rejection of those who look like they are ready, but in fact haven't really made preparations for Jesus' return. They look just like us. Therefore, verse 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the, the day or the hour. In chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus had said, no one knows that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Then in 2442, he says, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. After that, he spoke for seven verses of the faithful and wise servant, and then he gives a discussion of five wise virgins. All of this is held together by the fact that Jesus' followers need to be faithful and wise in the time we wait for his return. That is, we need to keep watch. So what's the point? Well, I think it's not this. I've heard verses like this being used to say, don't be caught doing something you shouldn't when he returns. Will you be ashamed at his appearance? 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. I think this is not, despite the anecdote I began with, the main point of these verses. The language of shame at his coming isn't so much embarrassment when he arrives as the shame of being judged and found wanting. So, what is the point? Well, I've got a, a few things to offer. First of all, the delay will eventually be over. And when it is, the time of preparation ends with it. It will be too late to rush around getting ready. Jesus offers no hope that he'll give in at that point. Don't presume upon the kindness and patience of God. Now, these girls, the foolish ones, have an assurance that they are not entitled to. They seem to think that if they get the oil and show up at the door, they'll be allowed in. You know, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Is he always let in? His time of standing, knocking, and waiting will come to an end. And then the door will be closed. These girls may have enjoyed a prominent position for weeks or months in the lead up to the wedding, but it's all worth nothing when the wedding begins and they are excluded. So will you grow weary of doing good and staying alert? Will you persevere in faith and obedience, both of which are tied to wisdom through Jesus' teaching? And I think, well, you know, you probably will get tired of the battle to resist sin. Sins like sex and alcohol and pride and greed I think we all know that feeling when we're not hungry and somebody offers us something to eat and we partake and then we can't stop eating. I wonder if sin works that way too. And I think we'll all get tired of being different from the world around us. And this too often can result in an avalanche of sin. Maybe we'll get tired of knowing that our brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries are dying for him and yet he still delays. Or maybe one day it won't be Christians overseas who are being arrested or murdered or dying for Christ. And maybe then you'll discover that you haven't really counted the cost. So be prepared. 
Jesus says, therefore, keep watch. You don't know the hour, but you do know the master is coming. What does he want you to do in the interim? The surrounding parables give shape to that, but even more, the entire Bible teaches us how to live in light of the coming king. Don't grow weary. Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So what is God calling you to do? Are you growing weary as you do it? Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up.